Today on Warriors Roundtable, New York Times best-selling author Marcus Brotherton and the subject of his latest book, Special Forces Medic and Medal of Honor recipient, Gary Bykirk. Like many medics, probably the most significant milestones are the ones that haunt you, where you ask yourself, what if? So Gary, pretty quickly on, he's wounded three times, stomach back, uh, near the spine, in his hip and he is paralyzed from the waist down. He can't walk. Here's this bleeding, wounded, paralyzed medic being carried from one wounded person to another. Third time I was shot, and it was at that point that everybody thought that I was gonna die. But I just said, Dave, if I'm dying, I'm not dying down here. Take me out and back into the battle. To really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, life has a meaning to protect it will never know. And I want you to teach me about the Medal of Honor, God. What's this mean? Why me? I mean, that was a tremendous burden. How am I going to make this a part of my life? How am I going to live with this? And that's a battle that, that takes its toll. So today I have the privilege of interviewing two people. Marcus Brotherton, author of Blaze of Light, and the man that this is about, Gary Bykirk. Special Forces Medic from Vietnam, Marcus and Gary, welcome to Warriors Roundtable. Great to be here, thanks. Marcus, first of all, let me start with you uh, before I have an opportunity to, to grill Gary. I think his story is absolutely awesome and I love the way that you crafted and told it. But how did the two of you connect? Because I know that uh, you yourself have done several books, uh, a lot of them focusing on the team from the Band of Brothers, the soldiers that served in World War II, but this is a little different. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and Gary met? Hmm. As a journalist, it's uh, you know a great story when you hear it, and I was on the phone with a buddy, and we were talking about various military uh, people that we knew, and he was telling me about this medic who had lived in a cave when he came back from, from uh, Vietnam. And I started asking some questions, and it was, it was such a story that was just so incredible, it was almost too good to be true. And so uh, I reached out to Gary, just cold, uh, through social media, introduced myself, said, have you ever thought about writing a book? The cool thing was that he and his wife, Lolly, had been thinking for some time about telling their story. And Gary, uh, incredible guy, he's, he's so humble, he didn't want to write the book himself in a first-person voice, because there were just stories in there, he was just like, I, I can't shine the spotlight on me. And so I said, why don't I write it about you in third person? and will shine the spotlight on the medal itself and what it stands for. And that's how this whole project started. That's neat. Gary, would love to hear your story. Before I do, let me just read the dedication that you have in your book. It says, for anyone who's ever fought through a battle or sheltered in a cave. Now, for folks who haven't read the book, that might seem a little intriguing. For anyone who's ever fought a battle or sheltered in a cave, I'd like to talk to you about both of those things. And I know the cave experience for you in particular was, was very poignant and life-changing. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your experience in the Army Special Forces and how did that prepare you for your experience in Vietnam? Well, actually, I think my life experiences prepared me for everything that I faced in, in the future. And uh, God has a way of doing that. I, I spent 33 years working with middle school kids, and one of the saddest things that I ever experienced is seeing a young person who has no hope or has no sense of a purpose in life. They do not feel that they're unique in any way, that 
that there's no real specific reason for them being created. From an early life, I, f I feel that I had, a, I had a sense of purpose. You see, I, I fell out of a window when I was 18 months old, and uh, I was almost died. But um, it was a two-story window, landed on my head, uh, fractured skull. They thought I was going to die, but I had a 10-year-old cousin who loved me and who prayed for me, prayed that God would just spare my life. And, and I was spared. Uh, so, and I was aware of the story. I was aware of the fact that she had prayed for me and how that um, I'd almost died. So growing up, I, I think I had a sense of a, a, of a reason for my existence, that there was a purpose and I had a hope. My parents were divorced, and uh, which was not too common back at that time. And I, I went to 11 different schools before I reached ninth grade. And in that move, I developed a sense of uh, a confidence, a sense that if I wanted something, I was going to have to go out and achieve it for myself. So there was a sense of resourcefulness that was created in me, a sense of if I want it, I can do it, I can achieve it. And ironically, those are the characteristics that special forces guys look for. They want to have people who can think outside the box. They want people who can, who can go on and be determined and not quit. Coming into special forces training, all those qualities of life were just reinforced, going through jump school, going through the first phase of special forces training. I was physically challenged, but more important than that, I was mentally, psychologically, and emotionally challenged. Uh, no matter what I experienced, I said, I am not going to quit. And consequently, there were a number of guys who were bigger than me. I'm not a big guy. I mean, and there were guys who could have been poster, poster people for Green Berets, but they didn't make it. And I think that um, the main reason was, is that it's like I had been groomed with this spirit inside of me that said, if you want something, you're going to have to get it yourself and don't quit ever. And that's what enabled me to uh, go through the special forces training. And I, I didn't even touch on the, the technical skills that they taught me. Um, regarding uh, guerrilla warfare, regarding the medical training that I had. All of those things were just tremendous and prepared me for what I was to experience in Vietnam. We're talking 75 weeks of the most intense training around. And one of the things that Gary uh, talks about is how the instructors would, would uh, they, they focused on making them uh, comfortable with the uncomfortable. So we want to put you in a real miserable spot and, and then let you fight your way out of it. Well, in spite of any of the training, there's certain things that you're going to encounter in combat that nothing can train you for. Mm -hmm. When I found out I was going to be going to Vietnam, uh, immediately a certain sense of apprehension came over to me. When my cousin and I used to play army, we used to always say, uh, we'd always pretend that we were in Europe fighting. We didn't want to go to the South Pacific we, because we didn't want to be in the jungle because I hated snakes and I didn't like tigers. So when I first got to this camp, the jungle camp, one of the first things that I did was I sought out somebody who would be able to be my mentor. And in the mountain yard culture, when a, a person reaches 12 years old, they become a functioning, important, critical member of that tribe. They have to start pulling their weight. They become adults. And in the context of the war, that meant combat. We had a 12-year-old that was an M60 machine gunner. 
12 years old. I used to think, man, back home in the States, these kids would just be playing war. And here I got a 12 year old that's actually out in the bush in the fighting. Well, I picked a 15 year old boy named Dale. And I picked him because he had already had three years of combat experience, but there was something special about Dale too. And I remember saying to him, Dale, I need you to help me learn how to survive in the jungle because I don't like snakes and I'm afraid of tigers. And he laughed at me and he said, Boxy, which is Vietnamese for doctor, he said, I don't want to teach you how to survive. He said, I want to teach you how to live in the jungle. He said, the jungle provides us our way of life. And so Dale began the, the difficult challenge of trying to teach me how to go into an environment that was fearful for me, that was threatening, that held all sorts of scary things. And we're not even talking about the enemy yet or ambushes or things like that. We were talking about things in the jungle. Yeah. He said, I want to teach you how to live there. He said, I want to teach you to learn how to look past those things that you're afraid of and look for things that can provide life for you. Look for things that can help you live. And that was the most important lesson that I learned that enabled me to be able to not only live when I was in Vietnam, but it's been important lessons that I've been able to carry on throughout my life. Every time I've been into a, a, a threatening situation or something I'm afraid of, I remember Dale sharing with me that, that there's a difference between surviving and living. Mm. I, don't want, I don't want to teach you how to survive because that's not what life's about. Life is about living. And so I've, I've wow. looked for yeah. those opportunities and they become what I call God moments now. Mm -hmm. Because I found that God is with me in all those things. And he's going to have certain instances, situations where he's going to show you that he's there. And those are the things that you pull out of. Those are the things that will help you to not only survive through an experience, but learn how to live. Live with God. And that's amazing. A lot of that is just such a shift in mentality, isn't it? From I'm trying right. to avoid pain, avoid death, avoid hurt, rather than... I'm going to live and I'm going to do whatever I need to, whether that be physically as you did in Vietnam or spiritually as you're talking about now, I'm going to do whatever I need to, to enter into an experience life in its fullest. Yes. It's really just a, a different mental shift. You know, Marcus talked um, about the Montagnard folk that, that you're referring to now. You spoke, you just talked specifically about Deo. Uh, the way Marcus described it was that the, the enemy considered them inferior, worthy of extinction. And here you are, Gary, as, I mean, you're talking about them as your mentors, as your guides, but you were there to also defend them. So they become your family. And you just talked about now Deo, who was 15 years old. Yes. Uh, when he became your battle buddy. And, and he died saving your life. Could you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your Montagnard family your, and, and your time there? Being a Green Beret, many times people have a misperception of, of what being a Green Beret is. We were actually teachers. And what our, our job was, our purpose was to enter into a culture, assimilate into that culture, develop a relationship with them so that there could be an exchange of information. This was their culture. This was their land. There's no way that I could go in there and be effective if I was going to go in as an arrogant American who was going to teach you all 
how to how to live in, in your society. Mm. This was their life. So I had to go in as a as a student. Uh, there was a humbleness that that was instilled in us in special forces training too, it's because if it was if there was that humility, if we went in as students, if we went in asking, teach me, teach me what it means to be a mountaineer, teach me what it means to be a member of this tribe. If you can do that, that will set up a rapport that will allow an exchange of information. It's almost like being a missionary. You know, you want to share a message, but the way to share the message is to have that person's heart open to you. Otherwise, that message is just going to bounce off a brick wall. So one of the things that, that I did was to try to develop a relationship with these mountaineers, which being the medic, which meant developing a relationship with the witch doctor, because every tribe had a witch doctor. So I had to, as a 23-year-old kid, I had to develop a relationship with a witch doctor. And, but in the efforts there, one of the things that I experienced was how love can be formed and how love can change a situation. In the midst of that, jungle, in the midst of the war in Vietnam, I had found myself in a Shangri-La that had become not only a place for me to live, but it became my home. These became family people. And that love is a, uh, is something that I will always, always cherish. And the, uh, as you mentioned, um, Dale and I had a tremendous bond of camaraderie. And by camaraderie, camaraderie, I always define that as, Dale, I love you enough and I trust you enough that I'm going to put my life in your hands, confident that you will do anything needed to keep me safe. And I want you to know that you can trust me so that you can put your life in my hands and I will have your back 24-7. I will do whatever it takes to keep the, the political context of, of the war where Gary was, was quite black and white. And people talk about the Vietnam conflict as being uh, chaotic, and perhaps it was overall. Gary's war, specifically in this tiny village of Dak Sang, was black and white. Mm -hmm. uh, this is in the, in the Central Highlands region of Vietnam. And as you've mentioned, the enemy had vowed to wipe this indigenous tribe off the face of the map. Uh, so the NBA, the Viet Cong, they hated these people. They considered them inferior. And so they are fighting for their existence. If they don't enter this warrior culture at 12 years old and onward, they will get wiped out. They, wow. their loved ones, their kids. So the war for Gary is all about right and wrong. We are fighting for the survival of these people. Mm. Wow. And I think that's an important point, too, because in a, in a very real sense, I was fighting for my family. I was fighting to defend my home. They were invading my home. I say that my war was not the war of Henry Kissinger or Nixon or any of the presidents, uh, many of the conventional units that were fighting Vietnam. My experience was not like theirs. I fell in love with those people. Mm -hmm. And when I fought, I was defending my home, my homeland. Wow. When, when Gary entered this village, uh, he was the chief medic of this village. There's 400 uh, indigenous fighters there and about 2,300 women and children, their, their wives and their, and their, and their offspring. And so he is—he's uh, doing medical makeup, uh, makeups of them. He is uh, helping to deliver babies, and he becomes very accepted in this tribal culture. And we're talking—you uh, know—he's taking the kids uh, down to the river to go swimming. They're playing volleyball. Uh, they're showing John Wayne movies at night. I mean, it is a jungle Shangri-La. 
uh, Gary was actually made an honorary tribes person. This tribe just totally embraced him and welcomed them, welcomed him into their culture. Yeah, I love the way that you crafted that part of the story, Marcus. Uh, I mean, the, the combat pieces are always sort of what are so interesting to, to the largest segment of society when they pick up a, a book like this. But there's so much more to Gary's life, and it's genuinely just absolutely it's riveting. I, I, I blasted through this book from beginning to end as fast as I could because I could not put it down. And I love that part of the story. And Gary... I want to come back, if I could, to to Deo. But before I do, in that time that you spent in Shangri-La, as you call it, are there any sort of milestone moments that stick out to you? Um, like many medics, um, probably the most significant milestones are the ones that haunt you, mm. where you ask yourself, what if? You know, what if I had only done this? If only... If only I'd done this, there's something more that I could do. And um, one that really is, was a haunting uh, milestone for me is, is covered in the book. And one of my medics, Chum, he had a newborn baby girl and um, she, she was taken ill. We did all kinds of tests. We're never able to determine what was wrong with her, but her fever just kept on getting worse. She became more and more dehydrated. And eventually, we determined that she was suffering from um, malaria. And we usually would give uh, an infant um, the treatment through an elixir uh, that we would give orally. But because she was so ill, we decided to give her a, a more quick-acting uh, method of uh, injection. And uh, she developed an anaphylactic shock and died. Um, and just that whole experience of, of being there with her, trying to save her. In the mountain yard culture, when someone was sick, I mean, the whole family was around. They would all move into the dispensary. Everybody would come sleep by the, by the bed of the person who was sick. So that the whole family was around and, and watched this incident happen as this young child, uh, who was only an infant, um, died. And what was riveting for that was that in the midst of my trying to save this girl and I just wouldn't give up on her I felt Chom's hand on my shoulder and just telling me that Oxy it's okay and the, for them death was a way of life it was part of life there was so much so much that I needed to, to learn about what really mattered in life and they accepted death in in, in in a, um, a beautiful and different way. It, it was just really a part of life. And there was no animosity, there was no resentment, there was no feelings of being responsible for it that was given to me. But I took all that on myself and I, for years that haunted me. At what point did that change and, and how were you able to to come to terms with the fact that you did everything that you could and that, you know, we say rule number one in combat is that people die. And rule number two is that we can't stop that from happening. And that is a sobering, sobering reality, especially for folks in your field who are there in the midst of it all, 
trying so hard to to save people's lives and and you're not going to save them all and children in particular are just uh they, they really touch our heartstrings in a way that that is so unique i've never been in your shoes but in deployments i've been on when when there's kids around and you're doing things with them it almost sort of it restores your own humanity in, in a certain way that just simply daily routine doesn't but right. there's something about their I'll say their innocence that makes it particularly hard to deal with when you see them suffer. How did, how did you uh, later in life finally come to terms with that whole experience? I think I began to, to deal with it because that was one of those experiences that I, that I kept hidden. I kept buried deep within myself. It was, it was, um, it was buried underneath a lot of anger, a lot of guilt, a lot of hurt, which actually were like walls that I had kept in order to keep safe, keep myself safe from people. I didn't want people to see that part of me. And those walls were really, really strong and impenetrable. Um, but when I went to graduate school, one of the philosophies of the graduate school, I was, went to graduate school for counseling, and one of the philosophies was is that the only constant that you take into any situation is yourself. If you're going to become a counselor, you're going to be entering people's lives. And the only tool that you're going to have that's going to be effective is you. So you have to be aware of your triggers. You have to be aware of your strengths, your weaknesses. And so one of the first things they did was in a small group setting, they said, the instructor said, I want you to go inside your cave. And I always thought that was ironic when I, because I, I had spent time in a cave. But he said, right. I want you to go inside your cave and I want you to look at that bear. And I want you to tell us about that bear. Mm. So in this small little setting of people, I started to share a little bit of that story. Mm. And that broke down the wall. That broke down, it was my the beginning of my effort to work through the guilt and the anger and the hurt that I was feeling that was kept, that kept me from being able to have a relationship with someone else. But that was the beginning of it. Um, and honestly, just a couple weeks ago, I have, I have a former student who's now a doctor and he read the story and he, he called me up and he said, Mr. B, I want you to know, I just read your story about that young girl. And he said, you know, there was nothing you could have done that would have saved her. He said, when that happens, that happens so quickly. And so having this doctor tell me that it, that I did everything that I could, but it just happened. That was comforting to me. That brought me some comfort too. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the idea of letting people see, letting people into your cave, seeing the things that you're trying to hide and having them be there with you and even though they see that, there's no, no judgment, there's no condemnation, but rather they, they just still continue to care for you and love you. That's healing. Oh, that's, and that makes a difference. There, there's another story in the book similar to that where a little boy falls into a, a, a pit of vipers. Hmm. And it, the tribes will carry this boy to Gary. And of course, he's bitten all over. And there's nothing that they can anybody can do. Gary tries his hardest. He's a, the little boy is eventually medevaced and he dies on the helicopter. The, the amazing thing, I think, as a journalist here is that when Gary is telling me these stories 50 years later, 
they're still tender spots. Mm-hmm. And Gary chokes up when he tells these stories. I've worked with any number of veterans over the years, and sometimes when people have been through very difficult things, they become hard and uh, unprofessional and impolite and almost kind of that veneer. Gary has gone the other direction, mm-hmm. and he has become, uh, he, has, he has reached out to other people. He's, he's made deliberate progress in his, in his uh, healing, in his development. And uh, th- these days, I can just say Gary is an amazing person to talk to and to be around. And um, his, his combat experiences and his experiences in war uh, have made him richer as a yeah. person. And that's been my, one of my main observations of Gary. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing how, in my experience with combat vets in particular, those who reach out and help others, those who intentionally uh, maintain themselves as compassionate people are the ones mm-hmm. that that actually heal the best. It's the ones that sort of turn inwardly, which we all have a uh, we all do, and we'll uh, we all have a tendency to do. But then they don't ever sort of reach back out. Those are the ones that unfortunately sort of slowly self destruct. Thank you, Marcus. That's uh, what what beautiful stories. And, and uh, before I do want to come back to to Deo because I think uh, there's a very poignant part in the book that Marcus where Marcus talks about you being uh, lifted away in the in the helicopter, but any other milestone moments for you, Gary, that that you wanted to share? Marcus asked me that, and he and he um, with some asked me about was there any humorous things that happened? And through the years, because I've been able to to work past that guilt and and that anger, I've been able to tap into the good memories, the things that are there. I'm looking for those things that can help me live. And so I can remember a lot of fun, fun times, as Marcus said, taking the kids down to the river to go to go swimming. Uh, I, I sent my mother about $500 and I asked her to buy me $500 worth of matchbooks, trucks and toys. And so she sent them over and I would distribute them to the children mm-hmm. because what the children, the children would make all these little gadgets out of the, the links from a machine gun, the belts of a machine gun. And they put them all together and they would, be playing with these toys. So I bought them all these toy trucks and, and cars and things. Those are memories now that I, that I really cherish. And I count those as milestones, um, just as significant as the loss of Chom's daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I have to keep uh, reminding myself that, that those are there. And the funny moments, we had a, an incident with a water buffalo where we had, to, uh, I was a camp veterinarian as well. Mm-hmm. And just remember us uh, trying to treat this water buffalo, and it was—it was just, it was like a Three Stooges comedy, you know. So there's, there's so many things that um, were joyous memories, but they were not available to me because for so long I kept that stuff hidden, afraid to go back there and remember. Which is great that you were able to recover it, because it sounds like your time with the Montagnards was so key in helping you capture, maybe for the first time, or maybe just in a a new, fresh, and deeper way, what it was like to have real, honest relationships with folks who just loved on you. And and you, you were able to experience something that I'm guessing you didn't necessarily experience to that degree, to that point in your life growing up in the United States. I had a pretty close extended family. 
and aunts and uncles that I lived with that were, and, and they really had a lot to do with um, making me feel stable in spite of the un- instability in my life of mm. having to move around. I always had their love to fall back on as well as their homes and their beds because I would be sleeping with them many times. So th- th- there was that kind of experience, but to experience that in the midst of a war, in the midst of a jungle, in the midst of something that is really, really frightening, to me it is a, is what is so significant about that whole experience in Vietnam, that in the midst of a war, you can find a love that brings peace to you. And I'm, th- I'm reminded of a picture that I once saw that where someone was asked to uh, create a picture depicting the peace of God. And there were all kinds of pictures of like placid ocean scenes and calm waters and things. But the one that they felt was the most uh, significant in depicting the, the peace of God was someone in a cave in the midst of a storm where everything is just, is just going crazy and chaos all around them. But in the midst of that cave, in the midst of that storm, they're sitting there all huddled up and bundled because they're experiencing the peace of God in the midst of a storm. And in a sense, that's what my cave experience was too. Gary, if I could, because I think, again, it will help us understand how important the cave experience, which you referred to a few times, we, we definitely need to talk about that. But to help kind of frame that, I want to share a little bit of your story using uh, Marcus's words here from, from Blaze of Light. So this is the, the day that you got medevaced out of Doxiang. So there's a, a whole lot that happens previous. You know, basically, uh, your village, your position is overrun by the, what was the final estimate? Tens of thousands of NVA? 10,000 10, uh, North Vietnamese. And in the midst of this very intense battle, you're running around back and forth. You're incurring injuries upon injuries to the point where you're having to be carried around uh, by your Montagnard comrades. And, and there's a point where you, you lose Deo. And if I could read that, at one point, you yelled to Deo, we're too exposed. We've got to move. It says Deo and Tot picked up Gary and headed toward a deep, semi-safe mortar pit that was surrounded by sandbags. The rockets, artillery, mortars, and automatic rifle fire were deafening. They were on the run, maybe 10 feet from the mortar pit when they heard another incoming rocket. Deo and Tot dropped the stretcher and Deo flung himself on Gary. The rocket exploded. Gary felt his body rise off the ground. Even before the dust and debris settled, Gary called out, come on, let's go. He shook Dao by the shoulders, but Dao didn't move. Gary felt torn clothing on the boy's body and warm fluid. Dao's back was riddled with shrapnel. Gary shook Dao harder. Dao! Tot was by Gary's side now. He rolled Dao's body off Gary and he said, he's dead, Boxy. Dao is dead. Gary went numb. The story goes on to, uh, to explain sort of what happened after that, that the, the waves of NVA coming in just continued. And one helo comes in, one helicopter comes in and, and gets shot up so badly that it has to take off. But another one finally comes in and they're able to get you on it. Meanwhile, 
just unbelievable story of, of God's sort of protection, even, you know, with RPG rounds and mortar rounds while injuring you, you were able to, to leave there obviously alive. Most importantly, what was that like to the degree that obviously you remember a lot of pieces and I'm sure a lot of it's jumbled both the order of it as well as perhaps what you were thinking and feeling at the time. But do you remember what was going on in your mind and in your heart in that moment? I've often tried to go back and especially when we were in the process of writing the book and Marcus and I would, I think literally we, we'd spend hours together um, and many times I would just kind of just be talking and, and the gift of Marcus is that he's able to take the jabberings that I had and the babblings and make some sense out of it. Mm. But I'm, I'm often asked during that part of the battle, wasn't, was I ever afraid? And um, before we came on, I was thinking about, about that. Uh, there was a time when I was taken down to the medical bunker, the third time I was shot. And it was at that point that everybody thought that I was going to die. And I thought I was going to die. And I said to Dale, and maybe it was the warrior spirit within me speaking. Maybe it was just my love for the people. But I just said, Dale, if I'm dying, I'm not dying down here. Take me out and back into the battle. And so Dale, even though he was wounded, carried me back out into the battle. And we continued to fight. And people said, weren't you afraid? Afraid of dying? And I, I said, no, I, I was not afraid. I can honestly say that I was not afraid because at that time I experienced something that was greater than fear. What I experienced was the love between Dale and myself. What I experienced was the love of these people. What I experienced was the emotion of defending something and someone who is valuable to you and what you would do to the extent to defend that purpose. And that was love. That was my love for this people, my love for my home. And you think about homeowners and people who defend their families. Um, that's what I was doing. So there was, that was a real experience of the power of love in a person's life. How that love could overcome the fear that you have of dying. And I have, a, I have an image that right now brings me a lot of comfort. For a long time, I wasn't able to to draw on that image again, because it was one of those things that was hidden underneath the anger and the guilt. But there was one moment when Dale and I were, before I got in the stretcher, we were cr carrying, you know, crawling each other, dragging each other because Dale had been shot. And there was a time when he would be going on, he'd go unconscious or I'd go unconscious and we would wake each other up and we would look at each other and we would just encourage each other. And, you know, there'd be this, this look of care and concern, this look of love that was shared between us. And that was a beautiful, beautiful thing that gives you a strength to go on. So all the while that uh, Dale and I were fighting there and when I was on the stretcher, uh, even after Dale was killed, there was just this tremendous overpowering sense of love that, uh, that meant a lot to me, but um, certain things happened and I, I buried that. I buried those experiences. I buried that sense of, of love because there were other things that started feeling too, the anger and the guilt and the hurt. And I decided that the way to deal with those things, I chose not to use drugs or alcohol. 
But I said, the way I, I know how I can stop feeling, I'll just flip the switch and I'm not going to care about anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing's of value to me anymore. And that started my homecoming when I, I realized that the way to deal with the feelings that you don't like is don't care about anything. Don't value anything. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, I had to stop caring for Dale. I had, I couldn't let myself feel for Dale. Dale. So in, instead of being able to draw strength from that love that we shared, I became this empty shell, unable to feel anything. To give some, some context to this battle as well. So the village of Daksang, it was located uh, 12 kilometers from the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is the main north to south uh, supply line for the communists. So the enemy wanted this village. What had happened was uh, in the night, April 1st, 1970, the enemy had surrounded this village, completely surrounded. It was a surprise attack. There's 10,000 enemy soldiers here. Inside the village, there's these 400 indigenous fighters, uh, 12 Green Berets, uh, 2,300 women and children. And the enemy just begins to shellac the camp. I mean, it's, it's an absolute uh, just wipeout experience. And so Gary is, is the chief medic inside this camp, and he's responsible for helping the wounded. And it's, uh, of course, it's not only the fighters who are getting wounded, it's the women and children. Right. So Gary, pretty quickly on, he's wounded three times, stomach back, uh, uh, near the spine, in his hip. And he is paralyzed from the waist down. He can't walk. Uh, so his battle is, is, is over. But and here's, here's, the, and here's the, the story that Gary really has a, has a challenge with telling. He's paralyzed from the waist down. His battle is over. And yet he knows that he still has a job to do. Mm. And so he calls these, these helpers to his side and he says, carry me, carry me around the battlefield. And so you can picture, here's this bleeding, wounded, paralyzed medic being carried from one wounded person to another. And that is how Gary continues to administer aid. How powerful. Let's, let's shift maybe a little bit now to, I know you, uh, you love to talk about the transition for you. Uh, before we talk about the cave, or maybe this is the point to talk about the cave, what, was there a point where you realized that you were beyond your own capacity to try to deal with what was going on internally? And then what did you do about it? When you speak of milestones in your life, to me, that's probably one of the most significant milestones. Because if you can envision this, here's this Green Beret who um, who is had all these skills and these talents, who's been tested mentally, physically, emotionally, and has been successful. Yet here I am in this hospital bed and uh, I'm dying. Mm. I know I'm dying because I'm going unconscious. And for me, unconsciousness meant death at this point. Now I'd been unconscious plenty of times in college, but that was, that was different than this kind of unconsciousness. There was, there was, and it's funny because when I was dying down in the bunker there, I said, I don't want to die it down here. I want to die in the battle. Mm. There was a sense that I had the camaraderie. I had the support of the men, the women. I had the support of my community. I had the support of Dale. Mm. And so I wasn't afraid of dying. But now I'm in this hospital bed. There's nobody there except me, me and death. And there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that there is no man that has power to retain the spirit, neither has he power in the day of death, and there's no discharge in that war. 
those words of Solomon meant a lot to me mm. uh, later on because that was my day of death. I was, I was fighting hand-to-hand combat with death. And every weapon that I brought, every weapon that the special forces had given me and had trained me to be proficient in, death would look at it and go, is that the best you got, Gary? Because mm. I'm going to win. You're going to die. I was an empty person. I had nothing left. There was nothing anymore. And everything that had brought me success and confidence in the past, death destroyed. Mm. One of the times that I came to, there was a chaplain there. He said, I'm glad to see you're awake, son. And I I told him, I said, I'm glad to be awake, sir. And he said, "Uh, I've been coming by your bed and I've been praying for you. Would you like to pray? And I... I, I thought that was kind of funny, but I, I remember specifically saying, I don't know how to pray. Mm-hmm. And I've never really had a need for God, so I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know who to pray to, because everything that I wanted to achieve in the past, I knew that I could look within and achieve that. But now, facing death alone, I didn't know what to do. So I said, I don't know how to pray, sir. I don't even know who to pray to. And he said, that's okay, son. God knows how to listen. And so at 23, 24 years old, I made my first prayer. I said, God, if you're real, I need you. And something happened. I say that my courage and my confidence failed that day in the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. Those things failed, but faith was born. Because all of a sudden, I had this realization that there was something greater than myself, something outside of myself that was real and was powerful and was more stronger than death. And not only that, I felt that there was an affection towards me. I felt a love towards me. And I said, I remember saying, wow, this is, this is something great. I've got to find out who this is. Chaplin calls him God. I'll call him God. But i got to find out about this God now. So coming back to the States from my homecoming, uh, there were a lot of experiences that, that, that kind of interfered with my mission and my passion to try to find out who God was, but there was still an underlying passion. In spite of everything that happened to me in the college, in spite of everything that happened to me that forced me to go to the cave, underneath all that was this passion to find out who this God was that I knew was real. But that was the, that was the incident, the time that I realized that I was not all I needed in life. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all need something greater than who we are. Fully agree. And I love the fact that part of your story, you know, in a positive way is a chaplain. Chaplains have a, have, have a special place in my heart and, and I'm sure yours too. And you're now the chaplain for the Medal of Honor Society. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So you're continuing to pay it forward in so many ways. That's great to hear. You've talked about the cave several times. And again, for folks that haven't yet read your book, this is a real central part of your story. Marcus, you described the cave for Gary as it being his professor, that it taught him how to live. Gary, you talked later about how most people will try to hide or try to find a place to heal. And sometimes, and I would say even oftentimes, that can be an unhealthy outlet. It's something that helps them numb the pain, but not necessarily something that helps them with the healing part. For you, 
the cave is where you went to heal. Tell us more, please, about the cave. This is a significant part of your story, I know. Well, when I returned to college and had some bad experiences, I decided that what I needed to do was, there was a lot of hurt and a lot of guilt that I felt. You see, I came home hoping that I could find some peace and some healing. But instead, like many that came back from Vietnam, we found anger and, and just hate. And so I decided what I needed to do, again, was maybe I just need to go somewhere so that I can heal. And maybe the best way to heal is to just forget about it. You know, that's when I started to flick that switch. And I said, okay, I'm not going to care about anything. If I can do that, then I'll get better. But on my journey after I left uh, the campus, I remembered that my cousin, the cousin who had prayed for me, when I fell out of the window, her and her husband lived in Massachusetts, Marshfield, Massachusetts, just south of Boston. And so I said, well, let me get back on my journey of finding God. I'm going to talk with him. And I shared some things with him. He shared some things with me and he asked me to do him a favor. He said, Gary, if you value our friendship, read this book, will you? And so I, I started reading this book. I read through Matthew, Mark. I went back to him and I said, what kind of a book is this? It's about the same guy. It's about this guy, Jesus. And he just said, keep reading, Gary. Just keep reading. So I started reading again. I got through Luke and I got to the 14th chapter of John where it said, let not your heart be troubled, Gary. This is Jesus talking. Let not your heart be troubled. And I said, my heart is troubled. I'm really, really hurting. Do you believe in God? I said, yes, I believe in God. I met him in a hospital bed. Believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Gary. So on July 2nd, 1972, at 3 o'clock in the morning, in a camper, I knelt down and I accepted Christ as my Savior. I knew that God had forgiven me at that moment because all of a sudden, this abstraction, this ethereal being that was out there, all of a sudden became real in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a part of my life, and I knew God had forgiven me. But I still hadn't forgiven myself, and I couldn't risk letting other people see me because I didn't think they could forgive me either. So that's when I decided that maybe the best thing to do is to go to this cave, believing that if I can go there and just forget about Vietnam, I'll get better. And so I went to that cave with the purpose of trying to forget about Vietnam, but also with the purpose of finding what God, finding out what God was said about me now. Because I was destroyed. Vietnam destroyed me. But now I have a Bible. I have God's word. And I said, God, you got to teach me. Who am I now? What am I? And so I went into this cave. And I was there. I entered the cave in September of 73. And I remember I made another prayer. I said, God, you gave me my life in Vietnam. I'm giving my life back to you now. Whatever you want for my life. That's what I want. I don't want anything else. Two weeks after I made that prayer, I was notified I was being awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, so some strange things happened in that cave. The cave became a place where I needed a lot to learn. I needed to learn about life. I needed to learn about the Medal of Honor. I needed to learn about healing. And so the, the woods, the woods of New Hampshire, the White Mountains became my teacher. And Marcus does a wonderful job of, ex of explaining many of the lessons that I learned in uh, during that time. When you talk about the cave, 
this was a place that was close enough to where you were going to, it was grad school at the time, correct? Yeah, it was a seminary Bible school. That you could drive back and forth where you would, you would hike, I believe it was for about an hour up to this spot where you were living and, and then back in you know, an hour back down to the van and, and you could drive to school. There's yeah, one particular part of the story that Marcus tells where this, this, there's this big storm that rolls in to the point where you're probably wondering if you were going to make it out that particular night. Could you talk, talk a little bit about that? When I first went into the cave, I, I have a series of messages that I call lessons from the cave, you know, mm. thinking about David and his experiences and what God taught him. But God taught me an awful lot. Um, one of the first things that I learned was that there's a, there's a big difference between loneliness and solitude. When I went to the cave, I was lonely. I was lonely in the midst of a whole college campus. I was lonely because I wouldn't allow people in. Mm. When I went to the cave, what I found was solitude. And solitude was something, it was peaceful. It was an environment where I could reflect upon myself when I reflect upon God and what he thought about me. And I, it was that solitude just that created the environment, environment for me to begin to start learning some lessons about what it really means to live. You see, there was a saying we had in Vietnam, which is mentioned many times in the book, but it's to really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, life has a meaning to protect it, we'll never know. Mm. And I almost died in Vietnam, but I and I fought, and I continued to fight in that cave. And because I fought, to those who fight for it, life will have a meaning that the protected will never know. And so I fought during that time in a cave, and, and God began to teach me some questions or some lessons about life. And one was in that was in that storm where I, I thought that uh, you know this is it, this is it. I'm going to be I'm going to be wiped out by an avalanche. I'm going to freeze to death out here. But um, when I when I mentioned that picture about the, that person being in the midst of a chaos, just snuggled up and, and warm, that's the peace of God. It was during that storm that I had the experience of, I, I went out of the cave because I was afraid that snow would come in, trees would fall, and that the entrance to the cave would be blocked off, and I might have to stay in the cave forever. So I went outside, and I just set up my tent, and I stayed in the tent, feeling a little bit safer there. But And actually, I was in there for probably a good 10, 12 hours. But it was in that cave that I, I said, God, you got me here. You know, I, I can't control this, but I can control how I react to it. And so, God, I'm just putting my life in your hands now. Whatever you want, God, I'm relying on you. And there was a peace that came over me. And, and the storm left, settled down. And I, again, it was a lesson realized about how that God is there. God was in the midst of that storm, as he is always in every storm that we go through. And even if he's not going to calm the storm, he calmed me and he, and he gave me a peace. That was a tremendous, tremendous lesson. It was another one of those God moments. Mm. You know, when I said you, the difference between surviving and living, I could have survived that storm. But because I looked for God, I lived through that storm. I grabbed hold of, of the God who was there with me and he brought life to me. And that's the difference between surviving and living. Surviving is a personal strength, and it just, 
But again, in that hospital bed, I lost all confidence. I didn't want to survive anymore because I knew that I couldn't survive on my own. So in the cave, during those months that I lived there, I learned how to live because I learned for learned to look for God in every moment. Let me give some context there. When Gary comes home from Vietnam, um, he, he eventually does learn how to, to walk again. And, and the paralysis turns out to be temporary. That's a story in and of itself, how, how Gary heals in body. Mm-hmm. One of the things he discovers the, is, is that even though he is healed in body, he is not yet healed in spirit. And that healing in spirit takes, takes a, in, in many ways, a much longer time. So Gary is in this cave, this, this self-imposed isolation time for him. And he's in the cave for 18 months. We're talking two winters in, in the White Mountains, uh, the, the Northern Appalachians. So we're talking snow and ice, and he's, he's eating his meals uh, over a campfire and, and just bundled up against the cold. It's, it's, it's real Spartan living out there. Uh, there's this one amazing scene where um, one weekend Gary decides to go for a hike, uh, you know, and he's still got shrapnel on his body. It's slow going for him. Uh, and as he's going for this hike up to the top of the, of the summit, there's all these uh, boulders in the way, and, and Gary is viewing these boulders as obstacles. And, and he's, he's, he's uh, disgruntled at this point that, that his way is, is marred by these boulders, and it's slippery and cold, and he's using these boulders as, as for handholds. And finally, he, he makes it to the, to the top of this mountain, to his goal. He reaches his goal. And we talk about how the mountain becomes as Professor Gary turns around and, and he looks down the mountain at the way he's come. And it's like a light bulb goes off and it dawns on him. He, he goes, hey, these boulders, they weren't obstacles. They actually acted as rungs on a ladder that helped me go where I needed to go. And that's such a lesson for many of us today. How, how often do we see obstacles in our life and we're sort of frustrated frustrated at these obstacles yeah and then we we progress through time and we look back and we see the obstacles actually weren't obstacles at all they were rungs on a ladder that helped us get where we need to go oh thank you marcus that's great i mean even right now you know we're filming this interview during a time that that so much of society is sort of locked down quarantined being held forced to stay indoors against their will and and you you hear a lot of folks scraping but what are the opportunities that it presents such a shift of mentality. And even to hear you talk about Gary having this shrapnel he's dealing with in his back. You know, I'm Gary, I'm sure that even today that you probably have a few aches and pains from that time in Vietnam that uh, that linger on. And yet you haven't talked about that at all. That's, that's not your focus. For some people, that's all they can talk about. And yet your focus during this whole interview is just on, on the goodness of the people and the goodness of God that you've been able to experience in, in your time here on earth, which is wonderful. Speaking of the great people that have been in your life, there's one more person I want to talk to you about. You know, I said to you before this interview that in some ways, Blaze of Light is a love story, but not, not in the sense that a lot of folks would think of sort of a romantic love story. It's a love story in the love that you received from your family as a young boy, your extended family, the love that you had for the Montagnards that became really as close, if not closer to you than family in many ways. Uh, your love for your fellow soldiers, God's love, his relentless love that he poured out on you for decades and just chasing you down. But also 
the love, the real love that you had for a young woman named Lolly, who was the one that brought this blaze of light into your life. Could you tell us a little bit about Lolly? I always say that there, I had a mailbox down in Lancaster that I used to uh, use to receive mail. And I always say that there are two things that I received in that mailbox that changed my life. One was a notice that I was being awarded the Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. And the other was I went in there one day and uh, this was after I'd been in the cave for about a year. And uh, there was this piece of notebook paper. I opened it up and it said, hi, my name's Lolly. I've seen you around town. And uh, Lancaster is a very small little town. There's only about 2000 people, only one main street, no traffic lights. And by that time, and I had hair down below my, down below my shoulders. And she said, I've seen you around town. And she just started writing me these interesting notes. So my interest got kind of peaked and I, I said, gee, that's pretty good. So I looked forward to these notes and I would get maybe two or three a week. And then one day she, I went to the mailbox and there was a large envelope in there and she put a picture of herself in there. And she said, hi, this is me. And I looked and I said, wow, she's, she's pretty cute. Um, <laughs> And I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to find this person if I had to knock on every door in the town of Lancaster to find out who this was. Well, one day I didn't, I didn't really have to do that much. Um, I did find her one day. I saw her in the laundromat and we went in and we started talking. Uh, we had a, an immediate kind of bond, a connection. We had one date. We had our first date in January of 75. At our first date, a couple weeks later, I said, so when are we going to get married? And she said, uh, okay, I'll marry you, but you got to come out of the cave. And because uh, I'm not going in the cave. <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, so we've been, we got married. We got married on Easter morning, uh, March 30th, 1975, on top of a hill outside of Lancaster. And uh, it was her love that brought me out of the cave. Mm -hmm. And it was, and that in itself was a lesson. You know, I said that I went into the cave believing that if I could just forget, I would get better. Mm -hmm. But I learned that forgetting is not getting better. Getting better is finding someone who can come into your cave with you, who will listen to you, who will, will love you, who will care for you, who will, if, if needed, will cry with you without judgment. But most importantly, will, will give you the sense that no matter what they, that person sees in you, but they're with you to the end. Mm -hmm. And I had two people that came into my cave. One was God and the other was Lolly. And we, she'd been with me for 45 years. And she said that, no, I wouldn't go into that cave to live. But over 45 years, she's gone into a lot of emotional caves mm -hmm. with me. And she stayed with me. And you know, um, Mo, I always have to say that um, there was a tremendous battle in Vietnam that resulted in a lot of wounds. But for me, what hurt me even more was after Vietnam and the wounds that I caused my family, the wounds that hurt my wife, hurt my children. Those are the things that, um, that, I, that I struggled with more than anything that happened in Vietnam. And uh, it's... Um, it's a direct result of some of the 
ways that I reacted and responded to the trauma of war, but it's taken the grace of God to not only heal the trauma from war, but it's taken the grace of God to heal the trauma that I caused my wife and my children. So the grace of God goes with us forever. It's a beautiful, and that's really the, the heart of the love story of how the grace of God is with you forever. There's a, there's a beautiful scene in the book where um, Gary, Gary's young daughter has, re, has gotten this holly hoppy lunchbox and she's just so excited about it and brings it home. Well, the family is quite poor at the time and, and, and they're living a, a pretty Spartan existence. And, and Gary is used to a warrior mentality. And so he, he sees this lunchbox and in his mind, it's a lavish expense. And so he gripes at his daughter and at his wife that they need to take this back. And, uh, and of course, the daughter is devastated in, in her little young soul. Well, lots of years pass, and Gary does a lot of healing and, and, and a lot of restoration work in his family. And uh, Gary, uh, is it her 16th birthday? I think it is when you, you, you buy her another Holly Hobby lunchbox and present it to her symbolic, symbolically. And she receives it graciously in love. And it's a wonderful moment of restoration between uh, father and daughter. I, I love what you're sharing about just where your heart is with all this. And part of that's because so many of our, and again, a lot of the, the listeners and viewers are of this podcast are combat veterans, but there's a lot of folks who aren't. And, and I would say just about everybody is fighting their own battle, as Ian McLaren said, you know, be kind to everyone because everyone is fighting a great battle. And I think that anyone can listen to what you're sharing and find points of contact and make application to their own lives. So I would maybe just as we wrap up, I would ask uh, what is something that you would share to listeners right now, whether they be combat vets or somebody just fighting their own battle and trying to overcome adversity? Uh, there's a wonderful story there uh, in the book where uh, Gary has the opportunity to return to Vietnam. And um, in fact, he's the first Medal of Honor recipient to be allowed back in the country. This is after the fall. The country is now under communist control. And so Gary goes with a delegation of people and they're meeting with any number of government officials and touring around the country. Mm -hmm. And Gary has an opportunity uh, just at a roadside stand one day. He meets this, um, this NBA officer, this former NBA, NBA officer. And so here's Gary and here's the former enemy. Mm. And, and they strike up a conversation. It's just such a moment of poignancy mm. where they're discussing their, their battle wounds and respecting each other as warriors. And this man has lost family members of his own. He's had wounding of his own. And Gary said, you know, how did you survive? And the man says, well, so much difficulty has come into my life. And if I wanted to, I could have internalized that. I could have held on to that. I could have become a hardened person. But he said, instead, I've chosen to forgive. I've chosen to forgive. And Gary and this man shake hands. And it's a wonderful moment of restoration. And Gary descri describes how that is really the key to so much of, of life, how difficulties come into all of our lives, and yet we have that choice. Are we going to become bitter, or, or are we going to become better? And the key really is forgiveness and love and reaching out and restoration. Yeah, it's that, it's that ability to be able to forgive, forgive others, 
for the hurt that's caused, they caused maybe in your life. And maybe even more importantly, the ability to forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. it, it was forgiveness that allowed me to work through the anger that was inside of me as I had to forgive those who spit on me, who called me names, as I had to forgive those who I fought in Vietnam with. I had to forgive them. And then there's the guilt, the guilt of losing Cham's daughter, the guilt of Deo's death, the guilt of things that I did. It was forgiveness that enabled me to work through that, the, the hurt, the anger, the guilt. But once I was, once I was able to go through there and not be afraid of, of them anymore, again, that's when I was able to find that love that was there. I was able to tap into the experience of what Deo and I had. I was able to tap into the joy of the, of the kids and the laughter and the fun swimming in, in the Dakpoko River. I was able to, to live, to live again. I was, I was able to allow myself to feel. For years, I, I did not cry. And I remember the first time that I cried. And many times now when I share my story, I, I cry. When I was working as a middle school counselor, there would be times we'd be in the classroom and I'd start to share some things and I would cry and, and the students would say, are you okay, Mr. B? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. I don't mind crying because it lets me know that I'm feeling again. And feelings are such an important part of life. And that's why, as I've looked at the book and, and our dedication to all who have fought through a battle or sought shelter in a cave, my hope is that, that in this book, they might be able to find some words of, of faith words that might help them find something to believe in, might give them a vision for what life is like. They might find some words of hope that would give them a reason to want to wake up in the morning, a reason to want to feel that there's something that they were created for, that there's a purpose. And I hope that they find some words of love, because to me, the love is the greatest gift that we can give one another. And love is, is a powerful thing. As I said, it's it's something that can overcome fear. It can overcome hate. And so I'm hoping that, that in the words of this, our story, they'll be able to find these words. But for me personally, those words and, of faith and hope and love, for me, I found in God's word. To me, that's the resource that I took to the cave with me. When I went to the cave, I was an empty shell. No feelings. I wouldn't allow myself to think about anything. I wouldn't because I was afraid of how I would react. I didn't want to feel anything anymore. So I stopped caring. But God reached in and showed me that he loved me. And so I said, okay, God, I'm taking your word into this cave. I want you to teach me about you. I want you to teach me about what it means to really live. I want you to teach me about life the meaning to life and why I went through everything that I did. And I want you to teach me about the Medal of Honor, God. What's this mean? Why me? I mean, that was a tremendous burden. Every Everyone, there's 69 of us that are alive now. And everyone that I know fights, fights an additional battle. We fought a battle that resulted in being awarded this. But once this is hung around our neck, we fight another battle. And that battle is just as difficult. And that's the battle of why me? How am I going to make this a part of my life? How am I going to live with this? And that's a battle that, that takes its toll. And it's just as, just as devastating as many of the other battles that we fought. God helped me in the midst of that ca in the cave as I went to his word. He helped me 
understand about who I am. He understood, helped me to understand about what the Medal of Honor is. And he gave me a message, a message that, Gary, no matter where you go, no matter what you face, I'm going to be there with you. He gave me a message that there's a God who is there. It, and it's a message that God wants to come into your cave. He wants to love you. He wants to heal you. And he wants you to bring, he wants to bring you out of your cave with a message about how much he loves you. That's the message that I hope we find, that others find in this book. That's the message that brought me out of the cave. And that's the message that I've been sharing for, since 1972. Well, that is a perfect way to wrap up this interview. Thank you so much for your time. So the book is Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of a Green Beret medic, Gary Bykirk, Medal of Honor recipient. Marcus and Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to be with uh, me today to share your story. Marcus, for crafting this story and bringing it to such a wide audience in a powerful way. Gary, for being willing to really pour out your heart, not just in this book, but here in this interview today. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. God bless.